John, the 21st chapter, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. Those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit of God says to the church. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the great quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you on this Lord's day and we pray that you would open the scriptures to us. Open our minds by your truth. Lord, warm our hearts by the grace found in your truth. And Father, bend our wills to obey your command. Lord, sanctify our lives by the power of your word. I decrease that you may increase. I become less so that you and you alone can become more. Lord, move me out of the way this morning. Let your people not hear me per se or you or see me, but hear and see you. Be glorified for the glory of God and for the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, a very good morning to you, and thank you for joining us on this Lord's Day as we come now to the last and final chapter of the Gospel of John. It is with great enthusiasm that I stand before you this morning to deliver to you the Word of God. I am grateful to the Lord for the rest that He has provided me with my family over the past month. I'm grateful for the, the personal lessons that He has graciously taught me over the past month and the lessons that I am still, by the grace of God, ever learning. With that said, we come now to this 21st chapter. And it may appear that the 21st chapter of John's gospel comes as a surprise, not because of the content of the 21st chapter, but rather because of the presence of the 21st chapter of the book of John. What do I mean? It would appear that the statements made by John at the end of the 20th chapter were the final and closing comments, the final and closing statements of his gospel. John, the 20th chapter, ends as such. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
If ever there was a way to close out a book, it is that way. You've read through 20 chapters of my gospel, and just in case you've missed it, the main purpose of all that you have read is so that you might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing in Christ you might have life in his name. Can you think of a better way to end a book? We must ask ourselves then, why this bonus chapter? If that was the main point and it has been clearly stated, then why this 21st chapter of the book of John? I'd like you to think for a moment about the very first chapter of the gospel of John. John brings before us a series of witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are witnesses of his miracles and they are witnesses of his teachings. And through those miracles, the miracles of Christ, and through the teachings of Christ, many have been drawn out of the depths of darkness and brought into his marvelous light. And now, John comes to the end of this gospel, and he is showing us, as it were, how the Lord Jesus Christ continues to work even after his resurrection in the lives of his dear children. The 21st chapter it's not merely an example of a marvelous uh, reunion, and it was a marvelous reunion, but it was more than a reunion. It was a revelation. What does the apostle say? Verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. Jesus revealed himself to the disciples, and he is constantly revealing himself to his Disciples. So in this last chapter, it is if the, the beloved Apostle John is saying, I am not yet finished of telling you how great, how glorious, how marvelous the Lord Jesus Christ truly is. There is but one more chapter. And in a sense, that chapter will continue forevermore. The first 18 verses of the Gospel of John are called the prologue of the Gospel of John, then the 21st chapter of the Gospel of John would be called the epilogue. The epilogue of this marvelous, Holy Spirit-inspired book penned by the Apostle John. And if the beloved disciple had ended his Gospel in the 20th chapter, there would be, there would be lingering questions, would there not? What about Peter, who thrice denied the Lord Jesus Christ? None of the apostles had professed so much and yet fallen so terribly as he. Whatever happened to him? What about the unnamed disciple whom Jesus loved? There is no disciple, no other disciple that remains so obscure and so mysterious as he. What, whatever happened to him? In the 21st chapter, the, the beloved disciple ties up all of the loose ends, if you will. And as we come to this 21st chapter, all of those questions are now brought back and answered. And we are brought also to a familiar scene, to the Sea of Tiberias. You know that sea as the Sea of Galilee. Here at the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee, as we will be referring it, to, it, to, uh, referring it as, there are echoes, echoes of the past as they find themselves now at the Sea of Galilee. It was here, on the Sea of Galilee, that our Lord walked on the waters 
as he calmed the wind and the waves that were beating against the boat of the disciples. And he calmed the wind and the waves with the, the word of his mouth. It was here on the banks of the Sea of Galilee that our Lord fed the multitudes with five loaves and two fish. It was here on the Sea of Galilee that our Lord, while sitting in a boat, delivered the parable of the sower. It was here at the Sea of Galilee that our Lord provided a great catch, so great that the nets of the disciples began to break. And it was here on the shore of the seas of Galilee that our Lord called some of his first disciples, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. Of all the locations in which our Lord preached and displayed miracles, there is no other place which saw or heard more from Christ than the Sea of Galilee. And here we are again. This final chapter at the Sea of Galilee. And now, verse 1 says, after these things, we find these disciples back where they first began, back to the Sea of Galilee. And there are just three points that I would like to highlight this morning and for you to take notice of within the first seven verses. It is a picture of the emptying process that God takes his people through in order to bring to us or bring us to share with and to rejoice in. His fullness. Number one, the grace of Christ in shaping our lives or shaping in our lives. The grace of Christ in shaping in our lives. Patience. For our good and for his glory. Number one, the glory or the grace of Christ in shaping in our lives. Patience. For our good. And for his glory. Verse one. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him. We will go with you. Among the company of disciples who are present at the Sea of Galilee for this fishing expedition are Simon Peter. Quick to speak and quick to act. There was Thomas who gained the reputation of being slow to believe and gained the reputation of being doubtful. There was Nathaniel of whom there is no guile, as was observed by our Lord. There was James and John, the sons of thunder, hot-tempered, passionate. And two other unnamed disciples. Most likely, Andrew, Peter's brother, and Philip. These seven flawed men, but chosen men, are gathered together in Galilee. And why are they in Galilee? You should ask yourself these questions when you're studying the scriptures. Why are they there? What are they doing there? Are they there to reminisce of old times? No. Together, these flawed, sinful men have come to see Jesus. They have gathered for the purpose of meeting with him and being in his presence. These men were obeying the command of Christ to meet them in Galilee. 
He commands them in Matthew 28 and in Mark 16. But Matthew 28, the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said he would come see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Verse 16 of that same chapter. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. These disciples were in the way of obedience because Jesus had so captured both their hearts and their minds. And he had captured their hearts in life and in death and again in life by rising from the dead and appearing to them twice before. Yet upon their obedience, upon their arrival in Galilee, they encounter a great disappointment. The Lord Jesus Christ is nowhere to be found. Or so they think. They are looking for the Lord. And they do not yet realize that he is nowhere to be found. What must they do now? The Lord has commanded them to go to Galilee Galilee, and they have obeyed. What now? They have no other choice. Either go back or wait for him to come. These men, they choose to wait. They will meet him there just as he said. They will wait for him and trust that he will come. They know the Lord Jesus is one who keeps his word. He has displayed that he has kept his word, both in life and in death. He is the Lord who promises, and he is also the Lord who fulfills those promises. But these men were no different than you and I. They were no different than you and I. It, was not, it, it is not beyond the minds and the nature of these men to both doubt and despair. Doubt if he's coming and despair that maybe he will never come. Will he come? Will he be true to his word? He has been faithful in the past, and that is often our only solace when we are presently waiting for his arrival. So they wait. And dear ones, have you learned in your lives that waiting is a difficult task? We often believe that if we are in the way of obedience, then whatever it is that we are trusting God for, whatever it is that we are waiting for God for, will come to us expediently, right away, because we are in the way of obedience. That is not often the way it happens, is it? We, by nature, we do not find pleasure in waiting. We, by nature, do not find pleasure in bare trees, do we? We, by nature, do not find pleasure in winter's chill, do we? But we must understand that the grace of God is displayed in causing us to wait, in ordaining our waiting. For it is in waiting that we learn that we on our own can solve nothing. It is in waiting that we learn that we on our own cannot cause the leaves to grow. We cannot cause spring to blossom. And we surely cannot cause the Lord to come. We must wait. And it is in waiting that we, by the grace of God, learn the immeasurable value of patience and waiting on the Lord. Brothers and sisters, what do you do in your seasons of winter? What is your mindset in times of waiting? 
How tightly do you hold on to the hand of God? Or do you find yourself, do you tend to loosen your grip as you wait for his arrival? Dear ones, we often learn more about the goodness in our, of God in our times of waiting than we do in our times of possessing. How? How is that even possible? Because it is in the times of waiting that God, by his mercy, weans us, separates us from our dependence on the world. It is in our times of waiting that God, by his grace, weans us or separates us from our dependence on ourselves. It is in our times of waiting that God, by his grace, weans us, separates us from our own abilities, separates us from our own selves, and teaches us to live a life of beggary, spiritual beggary, before God. Have you learned what it is to be a beggar before God? Have you learned what it is to have no power, no strength, no ability, but to only have a life that cries out to God? I have no other choice but to trust you. We learn what it is to be poor in spirit. We learn what it is to be persistent in prayer. And God, by his grace, uses these times of waiting, uses these seasons of winter as a means of molding and shaping our lives, ultimately for our good and for his glory. It is through deserts of waiting. That's often what they feel like, isn't it? Deserts. These deserts of waiting. That while we walk, sometimes wander even through these deserts, that God, by His grace, is teaching us complete dependence, complete obedience to His perfect will. Think about this. Even our Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, experienced in His flesh His own wilderness wanderings. Why? God in the flesh, the Son of God. His own experience of wandering in the wilderness. It was so that he could accomplish in his humanity what we failed to accomplish in our humanity. Absolute dependence and faith in God. But also, Hebrews tells us that although he was a son, he had to learn obedience from what he suffered. Christ in his humanity learned obedience. Wrap that around your minds. Christ, the Son of God, in his humanity, learned obedience through what he suffered. Do you see that? Christ learned obedience by enduring his wanderings in the desert 40 days, 40 nights, by, by way of waiting 33 years in the flesh to defeat sin. And he learned obedience through the sufferings, his sufferings, his unimaginable sufferings on the cross. And if our Lord, God in the flesh, had to walk through the wilderness of wandering and learn obedience, how much more you and I, lowly sinners. Our Lord endured the cross so that he could take his crown and stand as our great high priest king forever. The grace of Christ is displayed greatly in our waiting the grace of Christ is displayed greatly in the, in the waiting of his disciples. These men are being disciplined by Christ as children of Christ. And the chosen instrument of discipline is patience. 
It is often as we walk through the deserts of waiting that God in his infinite wisdom does not immediately bring us into lands of fulfillment, but he ordains our wanderings. You hear that? He ordains our wanderings. Why? So that we may be forced with no other option but to learn absolute dependence, to learn reliance, to learn obedience to him. While we simultaneously learn to forsake self-dependence and self-reliance. Oh dear ones, how good, how pleasant, how gracious and how precious are our times of waiting before the Lord. God graciously uses those moments to mold us and shape us so that we learn to live our lives on our knees before God. Imagine what immature believers we would be if we did not go through seasons of uncertainty. Imagine what immature believers we would be if we did not experience seasons of utter helplessness. Thank God for our seasons of helplessness. Did they not mold you? Did they not make you better? And did they not draw you closer to him? What other choice did you have? And yet, it is in the seasons... Of utter helplessness, those seasons where we we throw up our hands. I know you've been there and I have too. That we truly know what it means, that we truly learn what it means to trust in God. It is in the seasons of utter helplessness that we learn that God is sovereign and we are not. It's in seasons of utter helplessness that we learn that God is God and we are not. Huh? Obedience and dependence on God fashioned in the deserts of waiting. Brothers and sisters, let us also learn from those who act rebelliously in times of waiting. Let us learn from Abraham, who failed to wait upon the Lord in attempting to fulfill the promise of God by taking the the slave woman, Hagar, forcing God's hand, if you will. Let us learn from the rebellion of the children of Israel who wandered 40 years, 40 long years in the desert because they were unwilling To trust and wait upon the Lord. The prophet Isaiah encourages us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 40, 31. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Dear ones... There is much grace from Christ in our waiting. Wait on the Lord. He is molding and shaping your lives for your good, but ultimately for his glory. Secondly, the grace of Christ in empty nets. The grace of Christ in empty nets. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. As the disciples wait, Peter decided that he was going to go fishing. At that decision, and, and, and that decision has been scrutinized. Peter has been scrutinized by many commentators and many, many ministers who are asserting that Peter is once again abandoning the faith. But I believe that there's too much 
read into Peter's decision to go fishing. Perhaps Peter was going fishing because the disciples and Peter needed something to eat. But to assert that he is abandoning the faith, we don't necessarily see evidence there for that. Whatever the reason for Peter's decision to go fishing, it was clearly within the providence of God. The disciples gather into the boat and they are off into the Sea of Galilee. And there must have been something very comforting about going fishing for Peter and his disciples. It was an arena that they had all grown up in. All of their lives they were used to fishing. This fishing expedition must have been especially comforting for Peter, Simon Peter. There was a whirlwind of emotions that he had experienced over the past seven days. In the past seven days, the darkest areas of his heart had been exposed. When he first met the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 5, 8, he confessed that he was a sinful man. And yet the Lord graciously called him to be a fisher of men. Within the time Simon Peter had followed the Lord, he'd made many boasts concerning his commitment to Christ. John thirteen thirty seven. I will lay down my life for you. Luke thirty two thirty three. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Mark fourteen twenty nine. Even though all fall away, I will never fall away. And it was while standing in front of a charcoal fire, Simon Peter interrogated it, not by Pilate. Not by Caesar, but by a lowly servant girl. You are also one of his disciples, aren't you? I can tell by your accent. And through the interrogation of this lowly servant girl, this strong man with great boasts crumbled like ashes before her feet. He may have failed as a disciple. He may have failed his Lord. He may have thrice denied that he knew the one whom he claimed he would die for. The one he would go to jail for. He may have failed in all those areas. But he still knew how to fish. He was not a failure as a fisherman. There was at least one thing that Peter could still do and he could still do it well. He could fish. So back on the water, back on familiar territory, back in the boat, back to fishing. I can do this at least. Peter must have thought. I may be a failure in all of these areas. I may even be a failure as a believer. But I can at least still fish. The disciples, they know the sea. It is quite possible that they found the familiar spots that they know fish to be in. They cast their large nets. They wait. They pull them up. Empty. Cast again, boy. So they throw, they cast, they draw again. Empty. Strange. They cast again. They draw up again. Empty. Over and over again. They cast, they draw. And over and over again. Empty. 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 Every single time. All throughout the night. Casting. Drawing, nothing, casting, drawing, nothing, not one fish, as if there was no more fish left in the Sea of Galilee. These are fishermen. They are not novice. They're not rookies at this. They are men who have fished this sea all of their lives. And now they're not, they're unable to draw one fish from the sea. Empty nets. And there is much grace from Christ in empty nets. How? How? 
vow is there. We must value that even our greatest efforts are worthless before God. That even our greatest efforts, even the things that we can do, are worthless before God. Our Lord said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But there is a deeper lesson, a deeper truth to that. We all say, without Christ, we can do nothing. But Jesus is teaching Simon Peter and the disciples and you and I this morning that without Christ, we cannot even do what we can do. Simon Peter had failed in many areas of his life. But there was one thing that Simon Peter thought he could still do. One thing that he could still be successful at. And yet even there he is a failure. Not even in his greatest ability was he able to succeed. He and they were utter failures. Brothers and sisters, there is much grace and love from Christ in emptiness. How is there grace in emptiness? How is it possible that there is, there is grace in emptiness? In times of waiting on God, we tend to resort to running back to the allures of the world, the allures of the flesh and the allures of the devil in order to satisfy what we are waiting on God for. Why? Because we are deceived into thinking that there is some satisfaction in former things and that somehow, some way, they may give to us what we can only find in God. For Peter, he sought his solace in fishing. The Lord delayed his coming, so the sea began to call out to him, come and find your rest here. Dear ones, what calls out to you when you are waiting on the Lord? What calls out to you? Come, find your rest here when you are waiting on the Lord. What allures from the world, the flesh and the devil call out to you as you are waiting on the Lord? And what did you discover when you cast your nets and answered their call? Did you find empty nets? Are you still casting your net, hoping to find something to satisfy? Brothers and sisters, you will cast all night long. You will cast until the day breaks. And by the mercy of God, your net will remain empty. And you had better thank God that your nets remain empty. You will never be able to fill your own nets. Imagine. Imagine that night. The minds of the disciples, as they cast over and over again and drew empty nets, Peter must have been asking, it must be because of all my denials. Thomas asking, it must be because I'm slow to believe. Nathaniel, it is because I am full of guile. I am full of guile. The sons of Zebedee, James and John, it is because we are sons of thunder and we should be sons of consolation. That's why there, there are empty nets. Now, there is nothing that you can do to fill your net. There is no good that you can do. No great thing that can be done for you to fill your own net. So then, where is the grace of the empty nets? You keep saying grace and love. Where is it then of the empty nets? The grace and mercy of the empty nets is found in the fact 
that their nets were empty. That there is the grace. The grace and love of God is in empty nets. That is where it's found. That their longings for something other than Christ, though they were experts, though they toiled all night, their longing for something else came up empty. Thank God when you go outside of His grace, when you go outside of His mercy, and then you go there to find there is nothing there. It is empty. It is meaningless. It is worthless. Thank God that you discovered it is meaningless. It is worthless. There is nothing there. For if you found something there, then dear one, you do not belong to Him. They could not fill their own nets. There was complete frustration with the thing that they were successful in, the thing that they had done all their life, and God gave them a gift of failure. He gave them the gift of causing his elect to fail. Can you imagine the nets being thrown over and God saying, no, get out. Nets says, the fish says, and leaves. That's exactly what happened. He's redirecting fish. No, you don't. Get out. And they hop out. Sorry, Lord. There is much grace there. I'm teaching these men a lesson. You will not be eaten right now. Imagine if they had gained a great catch that night. What kind of despondency would they have had? Despair would they have had if they had caught all these? There would be none. There would be joy. There would be exhilaration if they had caught a great catch. And how loving it is that our Lord works in the lives of his elect. Those who chase the the allures of the world, the flesh, and the devil only to find them empty. That he chases those things away. No, not with this one. They will go, but they will find it unsatisfying. They'll be back. You better thank God for the fish that he has chased away from you. Dear ones, the emptying of the nets was intended to point to the disciples to somewhere else. It was intended to point to the the disciples to Christ The one who was only able to fill our nets. And he does the same for you and I. He chases them away in order to point you and I to him. Christ alone can fill us. It is in Christ alone that we find our solace, our joy, our peace, our satisfaction. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Have you found that to be true in your lives, brothers and sisters? Have you found that as you sought to find solace in ventures other than Christ, that your nets have come up empty again and again and again? Our Lord promises, John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Oh, let the psalmist encourage you. Psalm 107, 9. For he satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. Be encouraged by that psalmist. Come to Christ. See that he alone can fill you. That he can fulfill your deepest longings. That he can fulfill your deepest satisfactions. Find it alone in Christ. Third and finally. 
The grace of Christ in filling empty nets. The grace of Christ in filling empty nets. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the great quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. The Lord Jesus stood on the shore that evening. Do you see that verse? Do you see the semicolon there? There's meant to be a pause, a pause period, so that you could just take notice of that. The Lord Jesus stood on the shore. And my soul takes great comfort in that passage. We are told, not told how long the Lord Jesus had been standing there. The passage implies that Jesus suddenly appeared. But our Lord stood on the shore. Imagine this. He'd been watching them in the darkness. Imagine this. He's standing there all that night watching them as they toil, watching them as they cast and as they draw and as they come up empty. And he's watching them over and over again in their best efforts and what they knew they could do. He watches them and he stands on the shore redirecting fish out of their nets. Sure, it would be that simple, right? So, too, the Lord Jesus Christ stands on the shore of all of your impossibilities. He stands on the shore of all of your empty nets. Dear ones, he knows your dark moments. He knows your midnight hours. He knows your doubts, your fears, and your failures. He's standing on the shore. Verse 4. The disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish, children, or lads, if you will? Young ones, have you caught anything? The voice echoes across the water. Our Lord comes to his disciples and his identity is, is concealed from them. And he asked them a question that he already knows the answer to. What have you found? As he watched them toil all night, all night long. As he watched them work all night long. Have you any success in all of your workings? You've toiled all night, light, all night long. What do you have to show for yourselves? Think about that uncomfortable response that must have muttered from their lips and creeped and crawled across the water. No. Not an explanation. There is no explanation that makes any sense. Seven men, decades of experience, professionals, and they've caught nothing. Children, do you have any meat? No. <laughs> is there anything you have to offer? No. In all of your workings, what have you accomplished? I have nothing to offer. 
And that is all how we all stand before God. Is there anything you have to offer? No. I've got nothing. I don't. I wish I could say I do, but I don't. All of us have become like those who are unclean. And all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. In my flesh dwells no good thing. My nets, I confess, are empty. And have you been there? Oh, you should live there. Don't go there and then walk away. Live there. Remain there. I have nothing. At the place where you say, with all sincerity of heart, I have nothing to offer. And there is much grace from Christ when we come to him with empty nets. The Lord Jesus empties us so that he, as only he can, can fill us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He commands the disciples, verse 6, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast And now they were not able to haul it in because of the great quantity of fish. Had they toiled all night long? Had come up empty over and over again. And now this unknown stranger from the shore calls out, cast on the right side. You're doing it all wrong. The right right side. And it was because... They had come up empty so many times that their hearts and minds were now in a position to respond to the command of Christ. That's the purpose of empty nets. Empty nets to say, I've got nothing else to do. I can, I can do nothing on my own. Come to Christ. He will fill you. You cannot be more humble than having empty nets. Got nothing to lose, right? Guys, throw it on the right side. They had been brought up. They had been brought to the end of themselves. And now they obey the command of Christ. They rely on him and his word. Brothers and sisters, dependence on the Lord is not for those those 85% of things that you and I are not very good at. Or for those spiritual things that we cannot do. If we are to live lives as disciples of Christ, we must learn dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ every minute of every day for everything that we do. Everything. This scene, it must have appeared especially familiar to one particular disciple. This was not the first time this had happened. And it must have been Peter whose ears and eyes spiritually perked up. He was on the same sea, possibly in the very same spot that he had told all night long when the Lord approached him and said, have you caught anything? No, let's cast out again. And Peter said to him, we've been working all night. But because you say, we will go. And once more, the Lord gives the disciples echoes of the past. For their catch was so great, more than they could have caught on their own if they were not able to haul it in. And there was one disciple who recognizes immediately, verse 7, It is the Lord. 
Was it because John could see him? No. We will see later that they, they all sat with the Lord, but they dare not ask, are you Jesus? For they knew it was the Lord. John could see Christ because by the grace of God, John was given eyes to see and understand that it could be no one else but the Lord. For only the Lord empties our net so that we might learn that he alone is the filler of our nets. Christ fills as no one else can fill. Christ satisfies as no one else can satisfy, as no thing can satisfy. And John immediately recognizes it is the Lord. My dear unconverted friend, if you are here, the Lord stands, as it were, on the shores today. He has seen all of your toiling. He has seen your empty nets that you have drawn. God has created you to love him, to worship him. You and I have rebelled against him and Adam and in our own personal lives. We cannot cast our nets and attempt to catch anything on our own. But we, because of our unrighteousness, are unable to do any good thing that will please God. We cannot fill our own nets. We will not come to him on our own. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to accomplish for us what we could never accomplish on our own. He perfectly obeyed the righteous law of God. He yielded up his life in obedience to death, even death on a cross. And he took up his life again, showing that God accepted his sacrifice for sinners. And now he bids you, dear unconverted one, or maybe those who have been here and who are not converted. He bids you come to him, escape the wrath of God, place your faith in Christ, repent of your sin and be reconciled to God. Brothers and sisters. Wait on the Lord. What should you take from this sermon this morning? I pray that you understand that that Christ graciously ordains seasons of waiting for our good and for his glory. I pray that you learn the grace and love of God in emptying our nets so that he alone may be the filler of our nets. Walk away this morning saying, I can do nothing but trust on Christ and Christ alone. I pray. That you see and that you believe. Let us stand.